Good morning. Esther 3, 1 through 6. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. You may be seated. Years ago now, uh, Rachel and I had the opportunity to go and travel around Poland. Um, Now, when people think of vacation destinations, Poland is usually not one of their first places they think of. Um, But Rachel's family is Polish and very, very proud of that fact. Um, And and I have learned to love the Polish culture. And so when we went, we went with very minimal plan, a few places to stay. And we're like, we'll just kind of explore the country as we go. Uh, And we found such a depth of of history and beauty. Um, And and one of the things we discovered as we first started kind of our, our trail through the country, we started in Warsaw. And a country that has a long history, um, we also got to see kind of firsthand some of the devastating effects of World War II. And as we made our way through and we saw, you know, these famous salt mines with a church built underground carved out in the salt mine stones, we saw uh, cathedrals, we saw castles all sorts of places, beautiful landscapes, but one of the most haunting places we visited was when we went to Auschwitz and Birkenau, a place that commemorates the concentration camps that were housed there where so many Jewish people, men, women, children, were killed. And I remember as we walked the grounds, just the eerie quiet of the place. It felt as though nothing really moved there. And as we walked through the infamous gates uh, where the words were written in iron in German and the English translation is work makes one free, we walked from building to building where we saw suitcases stacked high, uh, shoes, rings, the remnants of of lives lost. And as we walked the grounds of, of Birkenau where the train station would come in, there was a a beauty to the place that's hard to admit to because you know the tragedy that took place there. The still gray waters of the pond which is in the back is no longer clear because of the amount of ash that was dumped into it from the crematoriums. And I remember we, we both were exhausted by the end of the day. And we were just quiet. And in that silence, I remember I had one haunting thought. 
You see, so much of the history that's being pointed to in, in these museums, there's this refrain that says, never again. Never again. Never again are, are we going to watch this unfold. Never again are people going to sit silently by as people are exterminated. Never again are people going to allow their apathy to override their sense of justice. Never again. But all that played out in my own mind was again and again. Again and again we have seen the horrors of what the human heart is capable of. Again and again, we've seen genocide play out in Cambodia, in Rwanda, and with the Uyghur people in China. Again and again, we've seen the depravity of the voiceless. As babies are ripped from wombs. Again and again, again and again, we see the deep roots of death that strangle out the very breath of life in humanity. And it serves as this reminder that sin is not to simply be quarantined. It's not to be cut down or or just topped off like a weed in a garden. It must be uprooted. It must be eradicated. For if you don't get down to the roots, like a weed, it will just continue to blossom and grow and come back and choke out that which is meant to bring life. And in our passage today, we see again the deep roots of death. And the question we have as we look through this is, how do we do this? How do we not give fuel to the flames of hate? How do we not water the soils of sin? And so we're going to look at Esther 3. And I'll just warn you up front, we're not going to get all the resolve that we want to this morning. We're going to take a a portion of this chapter that will leave us uh, with what is to come next. But I think there's some things that we need to sit with and linger in. So turn with me to Esther chapter 3. And as you're turning there, uh, just a reminder, if you were with us last week, we looked at Esther chapter 2. A chapter in which uh, Queen Esther uh, was pronounced before the entire kingdom. We were introduced to Esther. We were introduced to Mordecai, her cousin, who was her caretaker, who was looking after her as though uh, she was his daughter. And at the very end of chapter 2, we see that Mordecai gets wind of a plot against the king's life, against King Ahasuerus, and he brings this news to Esther. Esther then takes it to the king, and the crisis is averted, and the two would-be assassins are impaled upon a stake. And that's where we pick up now in chapter 3. It says, after these things... After these things, again, the timeline of Esther moves pretty quickly. After these things means that sometime in the next five years, because the next date mark we're going to get is in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus. So we've jumped from year three to year seven when Queen Esther was named queen, and now we're somewhere in these next five years. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, just by way of reminder, uh, the story and the account of Esther that we have is used and in, in is, is the beginning and the inauguration of the festival that is known as Purim in the Jewish culture. 
It's a celebration of God's rescue of his people. And one of the ways that this is celebrated in synagogues during this festival, which takes place usually about March is that they read through the entire story of Esther. And as they do, people call out and they cheer on the heroes. When Mordecai is mentioned, when Esther's mentioned, people burst into applause. And when Haman comes on the scene, people rain down booze. And I love this interactive idea of reading through Scripture and feeling as though you're a part of the story in real time. And so as Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, is mentioned... We're going to find that he more than earns all the booze and all the vitriol that comes his way by the way in which he lives. But there's also more than meets the eye here in this moment. See, the author of Esther is continually pulling us in to see the unseen. And so Haman here, he's introduced much like Mordecai was introduced If you remember in in chapter 2, verse 5, when we're first introduced to Mordecai, we're introduced to his lineage. Verse verse 5 of chapter 2 says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away the Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And when we read this, we noted that this lineage takes us back to Saul, the first human king of Israel. And we're supposed to kind of take a mental note there, but now we're moving on to Haman. And what of Haman? Why these details? Why is the author weaving this in here, saying that he is an Agagite, the son of Hamadatha? Haman is a descendant of Agag, that's what being a, a, the son of, uh, or the, the Haman the Agagite, that means he's a descendant of Agag. Now, if you were reading along with us this summer in First and Second Samuel, then Agag should ring some bells for you because he gets mentioned in First Samuel chapter 15. It's in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15, where as we come on the scene, Saul is king. And he was told by the prophet Samuel that he was to go and to strike down all the Amalekites. We are told that the Lord had not forgotten what the Amalekites had done against God's people when they were coming up out of Egypt, how they were attacked by the Amalekites. And so we read in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14 and 16, it says, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Moses is given this command, and and God is saying there's going to be, from generation to generation, there's going to be war. There's going to be animosity from generation to generation. There's going to be battle from generation to generation between God's people and the Amalekites. And why was there such animosity? Why is this noted so many times in Scripture? Why is this thread so tightly woven? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, in verse 17, it says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came up out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. 
Amalek had heard all the stories of God rescuing the Hebrew people from Egypt. He'd heard all the mighty acts, but he showed no fear of God. Instead, he showed contempt. But what's worse is the way in which he went about attacking the Hebrew people. What did he do? They were weak and weary from traveling, from moving along. And so he waited as the lines were coming through to see which of the stragglers would fall behind, be separated from the pack. And that's where he would attack. The children whose feet were too, uh, legs were too short to keep up with the rest were growing tired and weary. The women that were lagging behind Amalek just began to systematically pick them off. Like lions when they're on the hunt. What do they do? They, they come around and they try and disorient their prey. And if they're in a pack, they try to surprise them so much so that they, they flee in fear. And then they all come and circle around the one that finds itself isolated. And here's what Amalek was doing as he was moving along and paying attention to what the Hebrew people were doing. He just begins to pick off those who were isolated, those who were left behind, those who were the weakest. And so centuries later, in 1 Samuel 15, King Saul is told by God to go and destroy the Amalekites. He has not forgotten the death that was dealt to his people. And so God gives a command, a harsh command, one that when we read it, we're like, really? He wants men, women, children, infants, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. Everything was to be destroyed. Death was to be met by death. And so we read that Saul gathered together all the people. And he went out and he defeated the Amalekites. He destroyed everything. Well, most everything. Saul spared the king of the Amalekites, as well as the best of all the livestock. But what had God asked him to do? Destroy everything. Keep nothing alive. But Saul did not do as the Lord asked. So now Samuel the prophet arrives on the scene, and Saul comes to him and says, See, I I did what the Lord asked me to do. And Samuel the prophet says, well, then what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? What is this lowing of the ox I hear? What is all this surrounding you that I see? And Saul immediately begins to go back and forth with Samuel. Well, well we kept the best of the best so that we could sacrifice things to the Lord. That's, that's why we did it. And, and what does Samuel say back to Saul in this moment? He says, oh, is, is, is your sacrifice, that's what the Lord wanted? Or did he want your obedience? For obedience is better than sacrifice. And because you have not listened to what the Lord asked you to do, Saul was then rejected as king because of his disobedience. So Samuel the prophet, he does what Saul was unwilling to do. In 1 Samuel 15, 32, he says, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now again, who? Who's to be brought to him? Agag, king of the Amalekites. How are we introduced to Haman? Haman, the Agagite. 
Haman, a descendant of Agag, the Amalekite, one who was at war with the people of God for generation to generation. So as this account is being told and read for the first time, the tension of this moment is felt by all who are listening, and suddenly they're leaning in because they know that this villain carries with him the deep roots of death. And what are we told about Haman in this moment? We're told that King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set him on the throne above all the officials who were with him. Haman has been set over the entire empire. He's second only to the king. And we're not given any reason as to why suddenly he's elevated in this moment. We're not told that he did this great action and therefore he was placed in this position of power. We have no idea. And what feels a little bit stranger is following on the heels of chapter 2 where we see Mordecai step in and rescue and save the king. We would expect that his good actions would have been rewarded in this moment. But instead, the very next thing we read about is Haman, this Agagite, being elevated to second over all the empire. And we're told that All the king's servants, verse 2, who were at the king's gates bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Now, it would be protocol in any kingdom to bow or show reverence to your superiors. We see this still play out in various ways in cultures across the globe. We see this in England with the, the queen, now king, where people still bow or curtsy before them. Within our military ranks, we see people salute certain ranks. But here we see that the king had commanded people to honor and bow down before Haman. Perhaps Haman was not a man people naturally wanted to honor, and so the king had to encourage those around him to do this. We're not told, but all we are told is that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Again, the author of Esther leaves out what feels like some pretty significant things. We're not given a reason. We're going to be given a clue later, but uh, we're not given the full story here. There continues to be much speculation as to why Mordecai didn't bow before, um, before Haman. There are historical records that remind us and, and show us that it wasn't uncommon for Jewish people, even in foreign lands, to kind of go through the protocols to bow before a king, but they never considered that worship before a king. If a king was demanding worship, then we see that, of course, they're not going to worship anyone except the Lord their God, the Lord who is one, for they would love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and everything was to be directed towards him. But to be in a king's court, you were going to show some deference. And so we're not sure, again, was, was Mordecai feeling something more significant? Was, was Mordecai uh, aware of just who Haman was? Did he know that he was a descendant of Agag? Because we do have some historical references that say no good Jew would ever bow before anyone related to the Amalekite line. They would never do something like that. So here we have Mordecai refusing to bow. And what we we do know is that Haman didn't notice. 
Haman wasn't the one who, who saw this. No, as, as one author puts it, uh, the people that noticed were a, a couple of guys who were up to no good and started making trouble in the neighborhood, right? Verse 3. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. So these two guys in the king's court, these, this group of people, they keep pestering Mordecai. Why aren't you bowing? See, they noticed. They noticed his actions were different. Why aren't you bowing? What's, what's your deal? And they keep pestering and pestering him. And the only thing that they can get out of him is that he was a Jew. And for Mordecai, this was enough information to give them. He just says simply, I, I'm a Jew. Therefore, I'm not bowing to him. It was that simple. It was that clear. And there was a clarity of action that we see in Mordecai. It's actually a clarity of action that I think some of us, we, we long for, don't we? When we feel like the, there's these areas of gray, how do I, how do I navigate this? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to respond in this moment? We long for a clarity of what's my next step. And I, I believe wholeheartedly that clarity can be found in Jesus. See, when we bow to him, when we say he is king above all kings, then what we're saying is that it's his way over our way. It's what he wants over what we want. And, it, and certain options now are just off the table for us. We don't even have to entertain them. Because to say yes to him becomes our, our clarion call, the thing that we pursue. But here we see Mordecai not bowing before this man. Where we're assuming he says, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Jew. I'm not going to bow before this guy. But the servants don't stop here. They get enough information, but what do they do with that information? They take it to Haman. They now need to bring it to his attention to see if they can get out of bowing too or, or what he's going to do in this moment. And what do we read in verse 5? And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. He was filled with fury. Haman, who we are going to discover is a man after his own glory, wants to be noticed, wants people to pay attention to him, wants everything, all eyes on him. And here in this moment, Mordecai is refusing to bow to him. He finally takes notice because it's pointed out, and now what's his reaction? He is filled with fury. Now, it's interesting here, and we don't always catch it because we're reading in the English translation, but Haman's uh, name... It actually sounds like the Hebrew word for, for wrath, for fury, chemeh. So Haman is filled with chemeh. This wrathful man is filled with anger towards those who are not paying him the respect he thinks he should receive. And so anger towards Mordecai is going to lead towards retribution towards many a theme we see in Esther, where one person's actions turns into an empire-wide decree. We, we saw it with Queen Vashti. King Ahasuerus wasn't like, I'm just going to have a conversation with my wife, and we're going to figure this out. He's like, no, we need a royal decree. We're bringing everybody into this business, right? 
Same thing here. Haman is like, you offended me. Now I'm coming after you and all your people. Not just you are going down. All who are Jews are going down. Verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And what do we see here? Old rivalries rearing their head once again. And the deep roots of death entwine themselves in this story. A moment of disobedience in Saul the king who is to be the the human representation of, of following after God before all his people. And he didn't obey. He didn't listen to what God had to say. And what we discover is that he he allowed Agag to live longer than he was supposed to. We also see that, again, the Amalekites would would come and attack the people of God, which leads us to believe that he left some other remnants of the Amalekites alive, which gets us to this point where this undealt with sin is now rearing its head again in this story between Haman and Mordecai. We have a, a basketball hoop in our front yard. And for a long time, it had one of those water bases on the bottom of it, and it was slowly deteriorating. And one day, uh, the, the boys had lowered the hoop so they could dunk on it, and Ephraim came through with a big old thunder dunk, and the whole thing came down with him. I was like, we're signing you up. That's a scholarship right there. You've got the power. You're going to do it. But when that hoop came down, I knew we needed a different base, and so I began to research different things. What do we need to do? And I found one, and it was awesome, and it is awesome, and it goes into the ground about this deep, and you've got to use a sledgehammer, and you've got to just go after that thing with all your might and just drive it down into the ground. But the instructions tell you that the first thing you need to do is, is make a guide hole to see that there's no, nothing kind of impeding the ability to go straight down, that there's no roots, there's no hidden pipes, there's nothing in there that you're going to hit. And so I found a spot, it felt pretty clear, it seemed like it was rock-free, which is just a myth from where we live, but anyway, and I grab hold of this metal rod, thin metal rod, and I just I start hammering it down, and it's going in so smooth and so easy, which is always like my first sign of like something's wrong. This is going too quick. This is going too fast. And so I get, get it down. And then, and then it's just like, oh, you just pull that rod back out and then you, you drive the whole thing in there. And so I go to pull that thing out and suddenly it's like the sword and the stone. It's not moving anywhere. And I'm trying, but clearly I'm not King Arthur and I'm doing everything I can. And so I'm like moving it, I'm hitting it, I'm doing all these things. I look up on YouTube all the tricks that you're supposed to do to kind of untether something from the ground, and the pressure of it was just too great. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm frustrated. The sun's going down. I'm thinking super clear and really happy that now what was easy is hard. And I have this thought, you know, if I just hammer that thing straight down as far as I can go, I don't have to worry about it at all, right? Right? Because that always works out well, right? You have problems in life. If I just hammer that thing down as far as it goes, it never comes back. It'll be fine. And so I did. In that moment, I just start hammering it down. I'm just like going. It's starting to bend a little bit. It's starting to get a little weird. But I get it down until I can't see it anymore, and I'm like, success. So I grab the big thing. 
put it in there, and I just start going to town, and it's, it's moving, and it's going, it's going, it's going, and then with about this much left, it's just not moving anymore, and I'm checking it, and I'm like, no, it's not hitting a root, it's not hitting a rock, and I, I moved it enough, it shouldn't be hitting anything else, and then I like hit it, and I hear something, and I was like, it's hitting the metal rod. It's hitting, and, and no matter how hard I, it was, it was like my, my prior mistakes, right? Bearing them just delayed the inevitable. I still had to deal with them in that moment. And what we see in this moment is that there was a problem that was to be dealt with, and delaying it didn't solve anything, it actually made it worse. And so many of us, we just stuff things down or we bury it thinking, it'll be fine. I'm not that mad anymore. It's not a big deal. I'll just hang on to that and let that fester and grow. See, burying your problems, driving them deeper down doesn't deliver you from them. Just delays the problem. And here we see this act of disobedience of a a former king leads to a root of bitterness and evil that grows and comes back in devastating ways. And so we see Haman, a descendant of Agag. He's not content to just destroy Mordecai. No, he wants to destroy the entire Jewish nation that finds themselves under the reign and rule of King Ahasuerus. So he comes up with a plan. In verse 7, he says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Now what he's doing here, what Haman does, is he's like, I've got this plan, I'm going to destroy the people, but now he wants to find the right day, the providential time to do this. And so they begin to cast pure, which are essentially like little dice, until they landed in a favorable favorable set of outcomes that he'd go, okay, that's the day. And they keep rolling the dice, rolling the dice, rolling the dice, until a day is picked that's 11 months out from where Haman currently finds himself. Now, it says that they cast pure. These are the the dice that they would roll. This is the root word where we get Purim, the the celebration of Purim, the, the feast that celebrates God's rescue of his people in the story of Esther. But we see the casting of lots isn't something that just pagan people do. We actually see God's people cast lots from time to time. We see it in the book of Acts that they cast lots at the very beginning to replace one of the disciples. And so this day of destruction is chosen randomly by the lots, but what we really know is what Proverbs tells us in 16.33, that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So now with a future date in mind, Haman needs to get the backing of the king. He needs to get him on board. And what we've seen of this king already is that he proves to be readily able to be manipulated. Uh, And so this shouldn't be too hard. Verse 8, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all your provinces of your kingdoms. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. What's he saying in this moment? He's sowing seeds of discord. There's these people that don't care anything about their laws. 
They worship differently than you. They look differently than you. And we should just get rid of them. So, verse 9, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So he's building his case, but he's also not above bribing the king. And now we just heard of King Ahasuerus in chapter 1, the King Ahasuerus who threw a 187-day party, was lavish beyond all means and measure. And so we would think, is money really his thing? But then when we stop and we think about how much money is being offered here, this amount of money, this sum of money was equivalent to two-thirds of the gross national product of the Persian Empire at the time. This is not an insignificant amount of money that Haman's throwing down. This is the kind of money that would make even King Ahasuerus pause for a second and be like, that's a lot of money. And so he does. And so he, he, he throws it this way. And what does the king say? Because we've seen it takes so much to convince this king, a king who doesn't really seem to know his own mind. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people also do with them as it seems good to you. So he just hands him the keys and says, do what you think is right. You have full reign. You have my signet ring. You can stamp my approval on whatever decree you come up with. Let's roll. Let's take these people down. Verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned to the 13th, on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. So we're told here in this moment, on the 13th day of the first month, that this edict is put together, getting ready to be sent out the irony of this date would not be lost on its original audience. The 13th day of the first month, this was the day before the Passover festival would be celebrated by Jews throughout the world. The Passover, a day in which death literally passed over the Hebrew people and they were freed and they were rescued, a day that they were to commemorate each year through a feast and a remembrance of what God had done for them. Now on the eve of this celebration of God's mighty acts, a decree of death is sent throughout the land. In so many ways, I imagine as the word started to get out, even on the day they were celebrating uh, the, the Passover, as that news would hit so hard that there's a day marked on the calendar in which your neighbors are going to have the freedom just to kill you to come after you with all they've got. And here they are celebrating their freedom from Egypt and they're thinking to themselves, God was faithful then, he will be faithful now. How's he gonna show up this time? How's he gonna move this time? And so we're told that letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews. I mean, do you hear the language there? to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. I mean, this is just eradication. Young, old, women, and children. And one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their goods. 
So they're going to kill them, they're going to destroy them, they're going to plunder everything they can from them. A copy of this document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. And the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. The order to, to seek and destroy young, old, women, children in one day. It's sent out with a, a date 11, days in, or 11 months in the future, giving people ample time to prepare for this day of desolation for the Jews to try and think and get their heads around what is coming our way. Do we flee now? What do we do? And what's so amazing to me in the midst of this moment, as this word, this decree of death is being issued throughout the land, what is the king doing? And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Such a haunting contrast found in this moment. The city of Susa is in an uproar because neighbors are looking at each other now with suspicion. Like, I'm supposed to kill you, but I know you. I work with you. I've known you for a long time. What, what's going on? What is happening here? And what's the king and what's Haman doing? They're just sharing a pint. That was a good day at work. I feel like we got some things accomplished, right? I mean, you see just the, the way in which he's just not phased by the evil that is occurring in this moment. The questions that arise, what's happening? Who's, who's in charge? I mean, who's really in charge in this moment? What kind of king is this? What kind of king would allow a decree like this to happen so freely and so quickly? Why is this happening? Why is God allowing this to happen? What is going on? And here this decree of death makes its way through the empire and the deep roots of death strangle the hope of so many. Now we could, we could read on. We could plow through. But I think it's good for us to pause to remember that real people at a real point in history, this is all they had in this moment was that decree going out. They had no idea how God was going to show up. They're just receiving this in real time. Some of them celebrating the Passover when they would first hear the rumblings of that news. Where are they going? What are they thinking in this moment? And so this chapter comes to a close with death in the air. And what we see is that things undealt with, things delayed or things buried were awaiting this very moment to strike once again. So the question for us becomes, what do we pay attention to here? Because if we're honest, we need to recognize that the deep roots of death, they will not just disappear. They need to be dealt with in our lives. And it's easy for us to point out the, the roots of death in others, but we need to recognize that those roots of death run through all of us. They're there in our hatred of another that we just allow to simmer all the time. They're there in our, our, our hidden actions that nobody else sees what I'm doing, really. The things that we replay in our mind. The envy of another's life. 
where we sit and boil. How can they have it so good? What about me? Our apathy. Oh, what a dangerous thing our apathy is. When we just sit back. Our resignation to this idea that, well, this is just how it is. What can I possibly do different? Our insecurities that begin to rule over us. We can try really hard to bury these. We can try to drive them down as far as we can, but they're still there. And they will not be undone by our own strength. Because death must be met with death. And these deep roots that we find in all of us, they're only met by the blood of Jesus, the truer and better king, the perfect one who willingly died in our place to put death to death and to give us life. And we hear that and we know that, but my question is, but what... What is the bleeding of sheep that I hear? What's this lowing of oxen in our lives? Why do we continue to allow things into our life that feed the deep roots of death? Where are the things that God is calling you to lean into, to be obedient to, that you just continue to push off or delay? And he's saying, not someday, I'm asking you to do that today. John Owen once said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Undealt with sin in our lives is like watering death, that it may thrive in the garden of our lives. Undealt with sin is why when I walked through those gates of Auschwitz on our way home, I was struck by the words again and again because we see death again and again. But we also see a king who has come and he meets death with his own death. But a a death that would not remain for he would conquer even death, raising again to life, showing us an entirely new possibility on how we can live. See, we need to reframe that. There's an entirely new possibility of how we can live because our true king is here. He has come and he has rescued us. This is what Paul is speaking to in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses of your sin. The deep roots of death, they had entangled your very soul. They were pulling you down. Why? Because the wages of sin are death. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You were dead in the trespasses of your sin in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We once served a lesser king. We once served the king of this world. We, we, we have this sin that just pulls us on this trajectory of death. And when we recognize, what do we do? We pull out the sledgehammer and we just drive it deeper and we'll deal with that later. But what's Paul saying here? That's the way in which you once walked. That's who you once were. But when you bow your knee to Jesus, when you step into the reign and rule of the true king, 
Jesus changes everything. And even the deep roots of death lose their hold. Because Ephesians 2.4, what does it say? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The deep roots of death have been dealt with by Christ Jesus. And by grace, you have been saved. So let us not return to the way of death. For you have been made new in Jesus. And in Christ, hope is never defeated. And death never has the last word. So let us come before the true king. Let us come before him and expose those deep roots to him, trusting that he can conquer them, that he can handle them, that we don't have to just keep burying them, but he has come and he has paid our debt in full, that we can give him all of who we are and he can overcome that even when we think he can't. So let us come to Jesus and let us truly live. You pray with me. Father, this morning as we come before you, I ask that you would reveal to us those, those things you've, you've asked of us, those things you're inviting us into that we just continue to push off. Lord, would we not delay in our yes to you? Would we recognize that obedience is better than sacrifice and saying yes to you is, is the invitation you give us when you say to follow you. Lord, for those of us in here that have, have things buried deep, that we live in fear of, we live in fear of them being exposed, of others knowing those things that we feel like discount us from even your grace. Would you remind us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's no height, there's no depth, there's neither angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come. There is nothing that can keep us from you. And so, Lord, in these moments as we, as we worship, as we pay attention to what you want us to pay attention to, would you do work in us? And would we not water the deep roots of death? But Lord, would you remove them from us? Would we expose them to you that you could meet them with death? That those things would no longer have life in us, but that we would have your life in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as, as we close, we're, we're going to take communion all together in just a moment. So if you didn't grab the elements, you can grab those now. If you need prayer, we're going to have people available for prayer. Maybe you've got some stuff stirring that you need to give over and you need someone to partner with you in that. I'd encourage you to do that. But as we sing these songs and as we sit in this moment, I'd encourage you just to allow God to examine your heart. 
examine those spaces where the deep roots of death have made their way in and they're, they're choking out life and you just need to allow God to do his work and dig down deep and, and, and rid you of that. So let's turn our attention towards him in these moments, inviting him to move, inviting him to restore, and inviting him to give life. Let's worship. We never outgrow our need of the Lord. And he's never stingy with meeting our needs. So may you experience the king who has come to give you life, no longer turning to the deep roots of death, but recognizing that all your sin, sorrow, shame, and pain have been met by him. And he offers you freedom and forgiveness and life for all who call upon him. So as Paul reminds us, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God is rich in mercy, and he has come that we might have life. So as we leave from here this morning, may we step forward in the trueness of that life, experiencing his grace and knowing his peace. Would you go with God this morning? And as you do, just a couple reminders. We're here for prayer if you need it. Billy's going to be over in the cafe at 6.30. I'd encourage you to come back and hear from him. He's right down here up front, too. I'm sure he wouldn't mind meeting some of you and talking with you even now. Um, But as we leave from here today, let us no longer go clinging to deep roots that are killing us. Allow God to sever those, bringing new life and peace. God bless you.